Hello, everyone. Today we have an amazing guest. We have Steve Richard joining us. Steve's been a multi-time founder, uh, and he's also been on the board of advisors for AAISP, uh, which is American Association of Inside Sales Professionals. And today he's going to share with us some really great information uh, from how to use phone recordings or your demo recordings to improve, how to give feedback and coaching to uh, your employees so that they take it in a good way and don't fight back and push back, and how to build out your SDR teams. He has a lot of experience in sales and it will make for a really good and insightful episode. And before we get started, I'd like to, to tell you about startup sales and what we're doing. Uh, if you're an early stage startup and you need help building out your sales processes, whether that's inbound or outbound sales processes, then we could come in and help you with that. We could help you in building the processes itself, writing the content for emails, uh, putting together your outbound strategy and the infrastructure around that, and building and training the team to implement everything once it gets up and running. So if you want more information on that, you can find out at startupsales.io or you could email me at adam at startupsales.io. It's going to be a great episode with Steve, so I hope you really enjoy. Startup Sales is a podcast about what it's really like to get a business off the ground. We talk with founders, CEOs, and sales VPs from the high-tech market. You'll learn how to build and scale a sales team. You'll also hear about the growth challenges and tough decisions from others who have had both successes and failures. And now, your host of the Startup Sales Podcast, Adam Springer. All right, Steve, thanks for joining us today. Thanks, Adam. So, you know, I mean, you could explain your, your history a lot better than I can, but I see you're a founder of three different companies. You've been on the board of advisors for uh, AAISP. Uh, can you expand on that? To tell us a little bit more about yourself and what you've accomplished. I'm an, I'm an accidental entrepreneur, Adam. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess you call me a sales entrepreneur. Really, my backstory is pretty straightforward. I was a uh, guy who was supposed to go into finance. I failed in getting a finance job at Wall Street after college. Um, I went to sales to pay the bills because I had 60,000 school loans. And I didn't want to work for my uncle's septic tank business. No joke, Richard Septic Systems. And um, I, I come to love sales over time, I think, like a lot of founders do. Um, and ever since then, I've been, uh, my mission has been to help as many sales teams as possible, increase their performance. Great. So, uh, what about sales? Are you, or is it that you love? Oh boy. Um, <laughs> it, it, it's, it's the, it's the science and the art. So, so the thing that about sales that's fascinating is that there are some elements that are proven scientific, scientific, you know, Pythagorean theorem, you know, a squared plus B squared equals C squared kind of stuff. Um, like the predictability of the buy, buyer's journey. There are very predictable phases that buyers go through on the way making a decision. Fascinating science. Um, behavioral uh, psychology involved, things like that. And then there's the art form. And I've been on both sides of the table as the buyer and the seller. And then you also have the complexity of having consensus decision-making 
uh, processes which are dysfunctional. There's a great book called Challenger Customer where my old colleague at Corporate Executive Board, Brent Adamson, talks about this. So I just think it's the most fascinating thing in the world, the buying and selling dance that happens and what that looks like, especially when you have lots of different parties on both sides of the table. I think we're, we'd all be crazy not to think it was just amazing. Yeah. Uh, I think uh, only the founders uh, that have like really gotten into it are... Uh, or have been around long enough that we'll get that appreciation because a lot of technical founders, they're just like, if they haven't experienced it, they're like, yeah, just, just talk to them, sell them the product. It, it sells itself. <laughs> nope, it doesn't. And, and, and you see the, the, the founders out there that have been the most successful have generally figured out sales to a certain extent themselves. And certainly they've surrounded themselves with very competent people who understand the science and the art of selling. Yeah. So is that how you came up with uh, one of your current companies now, uh, ExecuVision? Yeah, well, so, so ExecuVision actually was, I'll give you the backstory there. We, we founded what's called an outsourced appointment setting firm. Mm-hmm. And, and that means that companies pay us to do their prospecting for them. Um, there's a company called Voresight that we spun off or we're in the process of, of, of spinning off that does that work where people will say, here's a target account, let's go get them. And in building our own uh, Voresight operation up with a lot of people on the phone, lots of reps on the phone. It became very obvious to us that the, the, the key to the whole thing is training and coaching, getting people up the learning curve very quickly to hit full productivity faster is absolutely everything. Um, so exec vision came from, we were actually a, a customer of this technology called team visibility. And then we went and acquired the business. So exec vision came out of our own personal need and frustration that we couldn't use our call recordings the training coach the way we wanted to. Okay. So how do you train and coach the way that you want to? Well, what we found is that salespeople love real. Um, we love what? Role playing real, just oh. real, real calls, real examples, not fake, not role playing, not, um, you know, practice as much as I wish that salespeople practiced, <laughs> um, you know, like, like surgeons practice on cadavers, you know what I mean? Like, like, like piano players practice, professional athletes practice, and sales, we don't practice. We're really bad at it. Guess what? I'm not going to try to fight <laughs> the herd here. Um, what, what I've seen over time is that salespeople love real examples of real conversations between buyers and sellers that they can, they can learn from if it's actually selling what they're selling, whatever product or service they're selling. So we said, how do we harness all these best practices? How do we make it so it's really, really easy to get to the right recording? listen to the right part of the right recording, um, share those uh, snippets or those samples with other people to teach them and make it so that learning is fun and you're learning from real examples. So a lot of companies that I've, I, I come across in these earlier stage companies, the first thing I'm telling them to do is to start recording the phone calls and start uh, recording these Zoom meetings like this. Uh, is, why do you think that is so important? I know why, why I think it is, but why do you think that's so important? Yeah, I, it, it, it's, it's so important because, well, there's a lot of reasons. One is note-taking purposes. Um, it's, it's critical to be able to go back later on and find out if there's, wait, what, what happened at that part of the call? Um, just so you can be able to prepare a proposal or do things like that. Two is a lesson from the Navy fighter pilot. So, they, there's this book called Flawless Execution that's awesome, Adam, that I recommend your, your listeners check out. And it's all about how the Navy fighter pilots have a, a brief before the mission, 
Then they do the mission. Then they do a debrief after the mission is over. And it's something that um, really every founder, we, we can't afford as founders getting, getting our products off the ground in the first place. You can't afford not to do this. You know, you, if you're going to, if you're going to survive, you have to iterate. And if you want it, a really, really great way to, to iterate is to <laughs> brief, execute, debrief. And there's no better way to debrief than to go back and review select parts of the recording um, to understand what happened. Three, you have the opportunity to create a library of great calls. After you're done with a call, all of us have finished a call at some point. And we're like, yes, nailed it. That was awesome. That's exactly what we need to do. Oh, shit. What did I say? Um, so with the recording, you have it. It's right there. The game tape's there to use for later on. And then, and then finally is uh, for coaching purposes. So um, everyone, I mean, even me, I've dedicated my life to buying and selling. And, and I get coaching from you know, junior reps in our team. I, I, I encourage that kind of thing. Um, we, we have a mindset of continuous improvement of Kaizen. It's a Japanese word meaning continuous improvement. It's the reason that the uh, Japanese automakers were kicking our tails in the 80s and early 90s. And then we kind of came back as uh, American automakers. But the whole thing is, if you're not recording your call, you lose this beautiful asset. Um, that otherwise, it's just basically going right into the trash can. Yeah. And how how can the rest of the company benefit uh, from it? Like, are you using uh, phone calls with with R and D and things like that? There's another use case that you're thinking about, which is sharing that uh, the, the the feedback, especially if you're early stage and you don't have product market fit established. If you hear the same thing in three or four different independent instances, that's the trend. That information's got to get back to product. You got to get back to your CTO, R and D, whoever it might be. So we can learn from that so we can have better product market fit. So there's just so many. You're hearing this as we're going. I mean, I've already reeled off between you and me, what, six different use cases. And that's just the beginning of the list. I, I literally wrote a blog called 100 Use Cases for Exec Vision. And there, I, 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 in listening to what people have said over the years, I've come up with 100. It's not what I came up with. It's what they came up with. Yeah. Interesting. A <clears throat> hundred, a hundred different use cases. That's, <laughs> I got to look for that blog post and read it afterwards. Cause and, I can think of a lot. Yeah. Adam, we had to stop ourselves. There were even more. I mean, there's so many uh, marketing, yeah. you know, listen to the voice of the customer unfiltered. Sorry for interrupting. <laughs> That's good. Um, with, with all the, the data that you're collecting in, in this kind of way, are you, are you looking at uh, what makes a, a salesperson successful versus uh, unsuccessful sales reps? That, that is the core of the whole um, concept is what are our best people doing differently? You know, mm -hmm. And I, I would guess the average founder listening to this probably only has maybe a couple of salespeople, two or three at this point. Is that right? Yeah. It's either they're doing the, the sales themselves or they have a small team. So, so here, here's what we typically find happens when you're in that stage and you're surrounded by, you literally physically sit near each other. You do a lot of sales calls together. Um, that's kind of where I am as a, as a company right now. I, I don't have a whole lot of problem on gaining consistency in how our reps execute um, because we just share a brain. We finish each other's sentences and that's fine. But, but we just raised a big um, uh, 5.4 million for medicine. We're going to be hiring a lot more salespeople. And now all of a sudden, the ramp time to productivity for a new hire is going to become the biggest problem in our business, biggest pain point in our business by far. That, but again, but because we have 
all the recordings annotated in the library of best practices with all different examples of how we handle competitive situations, how we handle different objections, how do, how do we communicate the value effectively, how do we ask discovery questions the right way. Because we have all of that, we're going to be able to ramp up these salespeople so much quicker. And what you'll find is once you hit that you know, next stage of your growth, when you move from like you know, three or four salespeople to 10, that's when the pain becomes more severe because you're just not hanging out with each other all the time. You know what I mean? So you just don't share a brain and have an opportunity to mind meld like before. And that's when you start seeing all these kind of weird things like, you know, rep A will say it one way, rep B will say it another way. And you get a ton of inconsistency, just a ton of inconsistency that creeps into the mix. So what I recommend is you start your recording when you have just you or a couple of salespeople, because when you when you start to figure it out, bam, I can go back to the game tape. I have that asset to leverage in the future. Then the reason that you record later on is different. Once we're yeah. scaling up those 10 salespeople, we got we to gotta ensure that they, they hold the line on consistency and how they talk about what we do, how they communicate customer value stories, use cases, all that jazz. Yeah, you've already pretty much figured out go to market and, and now you're looking at just scaling it up. Although, consistency, consistency and accountability, Adam, are the keywords to the yeah. whole thing. I wrote, I wrote an article on that exact topic. The two most important sales uh, words in sales leadership are consistency and accountability. Yeah. All right. So you said that you're about to go through a big hiring spree. How do you, let's break it down into bits. First part is what are you looking for in your SDR team? So what are we hiring for? There are three roles, sales development rep, inside sales rep, account executive. Really universally, you got to look for what I call talents and tendencies. Um, the genetic material of the people that you're dealing with. Are they hungry? Are they internally driven? Are they uh, coachable? Um, you can't fake those traits, Adam. You either got them or you don't. So we look for that for everyone across the board. If you're dealing with a mid-market salesperson, they have to have more closing experience. They have to have lived through wars, have failed. You know, we're looking for people who have failed and then, and then through failure come to succeed. And then for an enterprise account executive, someone who really understands a consensus decision-making process. Um, actually, the, the, I, I find that the people without any experience are usually the easier hires because you can mold them. Yeah. The people who are more experienced are... Sometimes they've got bad habits they don't let go. So I'm a little bit more nervous about them always. Okay. <clears throat> all those traits that you said, uh, it's kind of like cookie cutter. It's what all the blog posts say and everything. So how, how are you actually testing that? How do you look for people that are moldable? Before the bloggers even knew about it. We were doing it. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, so how, do you, how do you test for it? There are a lot of different assessments you can use, um, like uh, OMG. Uh, that's, a, that's a really good one. Uh, Omnia group is a good one. Um, but I, you know, or, or actually criteria core criteria has got a great one. They're one of our, one of our customers out in LA, but my, my personal viewpoint is, um, uh, do reference checks on them as opposed to the, you know, they're salespeople. They're going to interview. Well, don't interview. Well, that's a, that's a, a, a different issue. Um, so you got to find people who know them. And this is where I get a little bit of a benefit because I've got, you know, 15,000 people in my LinkedIn network or whatever it is. So I can almost always find someone who knows that person who can tell me what are they going to do when no one's looking. That's what yeah. I care about. 
That's a, and you and you ask that question. What what do they do when no one's looking? And what about all the other other questions? Like how how good of uh, good are they at closing deals? What's their weakness? There's an even easier, there's an even easier thing. So um, if you work with because you've worked with people before, you've had colleagues, right, Adam? All right. It's because you're not expecting to hear from me because I'm not your reference on your resume. And if I call you out of the blue and say, hey, Adam, do you know Nancy Jones? Immediately, there's this like knee-jerk reaction that's happening from your unconscious part of your brain where, and you can't fake it. And I just say, hey, what do you think of her? And it immediately turns into either like a, well, um, and as soon as I hear that, I go, versus, Oh, Nancy, she's great. And I'm telling you, man, you can't fake it. That's what's so great about it, because you call these people out of the blue, and then you say, hey, do you know the name of this person? And it, it just doesn't lie. I don't even really have to ask any questions after that. The other question I like to ask is, what are some kind of peculiarities of them as an individual that I should know about? If you ask somebody about that about me, what are some peculiarities that say, well, the guy's ADD, sort of all over, he sort of, you know, leaves projects unfinished. You know, there's those, those things that you should know if you're going to hire me. Um, and similarly, there are those things that you should know about everybody before you hire. Yeah. I like that. Don't, don't call the people that are on the reference because no, nobody gives a good, uh, bad reference, uh, person on the list anyways. Uh, if they do, that's a different, uh, different story, but they don't deserve to be hired. So yeah, prepare it as references. So you lose the element of surprise. I need the element of surprise because that tells me the truth. Yeah. And what about, um, when you're in the hiring process, what, what are kind of questions are you asking them and what are you looking for? You know what? I'm a terrible person to ask that question of because I don't even interview. Um, I think it's a total waste of time. Now, uh, yeah, because I've, again, what I was saying before, it's like the, the people who have done the, the research and the correlations on this can prove that interview success is the lowest indicator of uh, potential high performance. So if you go back if you, if you kept a spreadsheet of all the traits and everything and then all the different um, sources of information on the candidate, and then later on you went back and said, okay, for all the people that we have who've been successful, we could define success as achieving quota within blank time period or whatever. You're going to find that the interview will be the least predictive of any of the different other things you can do. Now, that said, if, if, if you want to get you know, geeky on interviews, I'll give you two awesome sources. One is um, Mark Roberge um, wrote something called the sales acceleration formula where he reveals his hiring scorecard. It's phenomenal. Just buy the book and, you know, make a copy of that and use it. It's that simple. And then, I used that my first, with a, when I first got a role as management and I started hiring, I used that. And, uh, and we talked, he actually was on the podcast. So, uh, we talked about that as, as well there. He, he, awesome. He's the man. It's fantastic. I mean, show me another sales leader who built, took a company from zero to a hundred million in like seven years. Yeah. Uh, then again, he had a lot of help from marketing and the product he was selling. He was selling marketing software to marketers. Nevertheless, he probably optimized shit that you and I wouldn't have. Um, and then the other, uh, the other book is a, no one knows about it. It's called, um, the perfect sales force by a guy named Derek Gatehouse. And the thing I love about it is he talks about how all salespeople are different. So someone who's really good at selling something with an established demand. So it's like, um, you know, uh, if you're doing ad sales, there's established demand. You know, people need to buy ad. Yeah. Um, uh, it would not necessarily be a good fit. It would be, but not necessarily 
if they're selling um, uh, like an evangelical uh, software product that no one's ever heard of before because there's not established demand. So he's got Derek Gatehouse has all these different like variables in the perfect sales force of um, like what demand type it is, the degree of executive rapport, how much activity level is required, stuff like that. And I, again, I just basically copy and pasted all the questions they had in there and I use those and they were pretty damn well. Interesting. So what, what's your hiring process then if, if you're not actually doing the formal interview? We do. It's not me. So it's uh, other people in the company do do the formal okay. interview. But I, I just don't waste my time because if they, don't, if they like them or don't like them, I hate like them because there's no data. <laughs> Um, then, then once they said, Hey, like we, this is someone that we believe is a good fit for the role. It's good. And, uh, we, we like them cultural fit, um, culture fits very important, by the way. Uh, then after that, I go back channel references. Okay. Yeah. We also generally have them do role plays. And, uh, here's another good tip for hiring. If you're a, you know, a founder trying to hire salespeople. So make the person do, uh, a role play, prepare them in advance. Tell them you are going to sell me probably your, your software or your hardware or, your, or whatever, whatever you sell product, a pen. And, uh, <laughs> I, I prefer we actually make a real example Yeah, um, and give them, give them some, you know, like, Hey, I'm going to be this person at this company and you're going to sell me, you know, you're going to do your job basically. And now here's the deal. They're going to suck at it. That's not what you're testing. You're not testing whether or not, you know, if they prepared, it's good, but I'm not testing that. What I'm testing is after they're done with that role play, and by the way, do this in separate rooms. You have to go to different rooms and call each other. There's no other way to make it work. When you're done with that role play, give them one thing to change. And then do it again. They either change the thing or they don't. If they don't change the thing, might not be coachable. That's a pretty good indicator that there's less coachability there versus the person who changes that, whatever the feedback is. And the feedback could be, at the end, I want you to say Mickey Mouse, okay? That's what I want you to do. <laughs> they're either going to do it or they're not, you know, and I'm not looking for them to do it in an elegant way, but I'm just looking for the fact that they're taking your feedback and using this other person. Yeah, it's a, I think it's a very effective, uh, effective strategy or way of going about it. I, I use it, too, when I'm hiring. And I also look, not only do they implement it, when I'm giving them uh, constructive feedback at the end, how do they take it? Uh, you know, this is really important as well that they don't sit here and argue with me. No, I think it's better to do this. You know, if they have an opinion, it's okay to share it. It needs to be a debate, needs to be a debate or talking, but not a fight. So it's really important. Amen. Yeah. So I heard a interview, a previous interview of yours where you're talking about, um, how, constructive feedback gives, uh, raises the cortisol levels. Uh, so when you're coaching a salesperson, <laughs> wow, good, good, good work, Adam. Well done. Yeah. I'm a salesperson. I'm, I'm, I'm my job is to do the research before the meeting. <laughs> so my question is, is how can, uh, either founders or sales leaders that are listening, uh, make themselves a better coach? Uh, cause it's not just to sales. It's also to anybody on the team. Yeah, it's a great question. All right. So let's, I'm going to get your listeners grounded in that, which you're familiar with. Um, basically when, when we, when most wait, once, one second, your, your sound, it went really low. Oh, did it? Yeah. There we go. Is it okay now? Yeah. I'll answer the question. Yeah. <laughs> 
So the first thing is, let's ground everyone listening to this in, in what you already know from the interview you heard. Um, whenever you're providing feedback, most people provide feedback in the form of telling. So they coach by telling, which is, generally speaking, it's the exact wrong way to do it because people value more what they conclude for themselves and what they're told. So if someone tells you to do something, you're not going to internalize it and you have a less likely chance of mastering it. And then the second thing is, especially if someone does something wrong, hey, do you know what you did? You did that wrong. Then in the brain, there's a, a stress hormone called cortisol. I hear Simon Sinek talk about this. And when you hit, get that shot of cortisol in the brain, the, the brain shuts down and the fight or flight instinct kicks in. And this is a really important point as you're thinking about how you're going to change the behavior of the reps on your in your sales organization as your startup is is you know starting to scale up along the way because again you got to get them consistent you know if they're doing things one way and everybody else is doing things another way and they're getting success and this person isn't we got to change their behavior so here here's the tip so first thing is we find that most organizations don't have a definition for what good looks like mm -hmm. in a different sales culture. so if we haven't defined good and the behaviors we want them to exhibit how could we expect the salesperson to hit our mark, if you will, to, you know, if they're an archer trying to aim for a, a, a bullseye, then all of a sudden we change where the target is. And we go, no, it's over there. It's over there. It's over there. Like, how could anybody hit it? It's, un it's crazy. It seems insane, but that's exactly what we do. So the first thing is we have to document, I believe it's from, you know, kind of anecdotal experience, the seven to 10 key behaviors associated with high performance sales for the different call types, because the behaviors in a cold call will be different than the behaviors in a call for following up on a lead, which will be different from a, a discovery call or a demo or whatever, whatever your call types are. So we define the call types, we define the key behaviors. And I, I've seen this work really, really well. Put it in present tense and say, does the rep blank? And, and form that criteria for evaluating a call in the form of a question. Does the rep ask the five discovery questions and then in parentheses, you know, one, two, three, four, five, the different topics of questions you're supposed to ask. And it's very binary. It's objective. You either have reps that do those things, those behaviors, or you don't. So that's step one is to find good. So now they know. Step two, get the rep to self-assess. You've got to get the reps involved in their own development because people value more, again, what they conclude for themselves and what they're told. I learned that from my mentor, Tom Snyder. It's something stuck with me for life. So if I can get a rep to go listen to their own call and I can get the rep to score that call based on criteria that we've established that they agree to, the rep agrees to, this is how we define a good call. This is what I'm going for, boss. And when they score it themselves, they realize, uh-oh, I don't score very well on this. If I'm being honest with myself, this is not the behavior that we were going for. And preferably, they conclude they should make a change. Now, sometimes they're blind to it. Sometimes they don't know what they did or did not do wrong. And there's a guy named Jim Keenan. Do you ever have him on the show, Adam? You know, no. He, he'd be a good guest for you in the future. He's a, he's a character. He's fun. Um, he's a professional ski instructor. And he, he and I disagree on this a little bit. He says, don't have him self-assess. Instead, observe what they do and then describe what you see. It's a lesson from professional ski instructors, that people who teach folks how to ski. There are four cardinal motions in skiing. There is the, how do we find good? and then. They describe the skier's behavior compared with the model of good, right? So 
the idea is that when you provide the feedback, you say, rather than saying, hey, you, do you know that you did this wrong? You know, no bad dog speech, because that's where cortisol kicks in, and that just ruins everything. Nobody changes behavior when cortisol is present. So instead, hey, Adam, let's talk about what you did. Coming out of, you started asking some questions about their situation. You, at, you uncovered, it, the, the prospect mentioned they have a pain point around X. And what we find, especially in junior salespeople or kind of novices, is they, they uncover a pain point and then they jump right to the solution, right? So rather than saying, okay, great, so how long has that been a problem? Sandler calls this the pain funnel. Um, you know, who else is that impacting? What kind of impact has that had on your business? How much does it cost your business? You know, uh, all that stuff, all the, the in spin selling, the problem questions and the implication questions. So rather than, by the way, everyone on listening to this, you should read to a, a book called Spin Selling. Fire reading for sales and shame on all of you who have not read this. It's time to go read it. Sorry, I gave you some cortisol. <laughs> so so the, the thing that we find that salespeople do is they jump past that. So I'll say, hey, Adam, you started asking situation questions. The buyer said they have a pain point around X. You then offered a solution. And that now I'm going to offer my, my um, observe, describe, my prescribe, my prescription in the form of a question. Adam, what could you have done differently there to further develop the need before jumping to the solution? And then you go, well, geez, I probably should have asked about, you know, how long it's been a problem. What have, what have they done to try to solve the problem? You know, who else is affected along the way? What does it cost the business? Yes, yes, right? So now you're concluding all those things that you're supposed to be doing that will allow me to then score, does the, you know, does the seller, does the rep uh, talk about the impact of the business, ask questions about the impact of the business? And I say, yep, he got a four. He did the behavior as we, as we described. So it's a long answer to a short question, but very important to find what good is in the first place. Get the rep to self-assess. When you coach, use the observe, describe, prescribe model for coaching. And then get the rep to go and bring back a really good example of doing it the right way on a real call in the wild. Hey, Adam, next time you do that, I want you to highlight that part of the call. I want you to share it with me so I can observe. I can inspect the fact that you're doing the behavior the right way this time. Wow, that's uh, really powerful. I really like how <clears throat> one of the things you said at the beginning was, you know, like you define what is a good call. And, you know, because that's... It's so important because there's always different techniques. Every salesperson has their own way of approaching it, uh, their own way of, of putting their, uh, of phrasing the, the question. So it's important that uh, you let them have their, uh, their freedom, their artistic freedom as a salesperson. Uh, but what are some of the other things that you, that you would define? So, you know, do, do they uncover the pain point? Do they uncover the budget? You know, the typical, what else would there be? There, there are lots. Actually, there's a subtle difference there as opposed to did they uncover. Uncovering means that the buyer told them certain things. If the sales rep exhibits the right behavior, if the sales rep has that call to a point where it is as optimized as it can get, you know, and if the buyer is not telling them or they just don't have a pain point, I can't knock the seller for that, right? The seller is doing the things they're supposed to be doing along the way, and they're just not Maybe it's just an unqualified prospect, but the seller's behaviors are still right. You know, so I think that's a really important part. But, but having done this, going back to your question, having done this exercise with a lot of other companies, I hear things like, it depends on the call type. If it's a cold call, 
or an unscheduled, unexpected call, there's usually some sort of um, intro where you demonstrate uh, where you have a purpose for the call and you demonstrate some understanding of the business. So does the rep use pre-call research in context to show an understanding of the prospect's business? You know, or does the rep establish a clear purpose for the call that they're calling to schedule some time or something like that? Then there's usually some kind of a value proposition or um, you know, telling a, you know, a, a story of a customer that's similar, so how you communicate value. Then there's usually some sort of a, does the rep effectively close the call for next steps and schedule appropriately or you know, ask, ask the qualification questions correctly, those kinds of things. In, in a scheduled uh, call, an expected scheduled call, it's a different flow. Usually, rather than leading with like a call, uh, you know, with, with, with like a, you know, a greeting, an unscheduled greeting, you're going to lead with an agenda. So you're going to start with an agenda. Uh, you know, does the rep start with a clear agenda that establishes a direction for the call and lets everyone know the purpose, something like that, and, and get feedback from the buyer on the agenda, those kinds of things. Does the rep then use the information that they prepared in advance to set the stage and set context for the rest of the call. Hey, we did some research before. We learned all these things about your business, and this is what we're prepared to talk about. Are all these things correct? Yes, they are. Tell me a little bit more about that. Blah, 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 blah. Great. Okay, now let's talk about your challenge, what we just talked about in a minute ago, the challenge, the discovery, the pain, the, the, the implications, the impact, all that jazz. Then you usually move into some sort of presentation of capabilities, or that's a future call, and then usually some sort of a closing for a mutually agreed upon plan at the end. So there's a, a, a plan where both parties communicate or, or excuse me, both parties commit to doing certain things within a certain time period. And that's a mutually agreed upon plan. It's a, a value selling and Julie Thomas, her company, they talk a lot about the mutual plan of action and all that jazz. Wow. So there you go. That just gives you a, you know, high level, what we're seeing across lots and lots of different companies, but this is the key. It's got to be specific to your business. <laughs> and, and I'm serious, man. I'm serious because what I, what I find, it's not like this one size fits all thing. And what I find is every company has these kind of, you know, um, cult like terms of art that they use. You know, one, one of my, one of our uh, customers right now, uh, they have a, this term called a DBM. It stands for a dominant buying motive. I had never heard of this. I've been around sales training and performance improvement for 15 years. I've never heard anybody talk about a DBM. And they're all throwing that acronym around like it's, you know, hot normal. Yeah. They all know it. They, uh, if you work at this place, you know what a DBM is. It's just like CrossFit. You know what I mean? Like, you know what the <laughs> WAD is, the workout of the day. I, don't, I never did CrossFit, but people who are in there, they WAD, okay? They have all this language. So use the, the language that's sort of the tribal knowledge in your organization to your advantage because people already remembered it. Yeah. So, so does the rep on, you know, does the rep inquire about the DBM? I, I'm going to use that, right? I'm going to borrow that mojo. Yeah. I really, I like that. I think uh, I'm going to start implementing that uh, more as far as like having like a score sheet and having, having them, uh, the reps uh, fill it out after a call. Not every call, but uh, I will get tiresome uh, and counterproductive. So how often, how many calls do you do it? Adam, two a week, two a week. But I, in an early stage startup, I don't, I don't think a bad idea is to do this. You know, take that card that you have. And again, it's like seven to 10 questions. Does the rep line? Thick stock laminate it. 
You know, if you don't buy exec vision, that's fine. You thick stock laminate it and you'll literally carry it around with you everywhere you go. And it kind of looks like, I'll show you an example of one. It kind of looks kind of something like this when you're done, right? And then, and then what you do is you, when, when you're done with the call, you take a dry erase marker and you sit there and go, and each of you has one of these and you go circle, 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 circle. And then let's just talk about it for five minutes, maybe three minutes. I don't think it's a bad idea to like literally do that quick and dirty debrief Navy fighter pilot style thing. If you're an early stage company, because let's face it, your at bats are few and far between. You can't squander them. You know, once, once you hit the, you know, the, the, the big, the big round of financing with a 5.4 million, the volume becomes so high that that would be absolutely insane. We would never, ever, ever do that. <laughs> right. Or you don't really have to do it. You know, once people start scoring, you know, four or five consistently, we don't have to keep doing that either on a scale of one to five, like they're, they're doing great, you know, but in the beginning, I, ca- I kind of question like, how could you afford not to? I mean, if, if, if you're going to be suboptimal, and these leads that you're producing are very freaking expensive. We're talking on average, these leads cost back five years ago is $732 per marketing qualified lead. Wow. It was data that came from OpenView Venture Partners. I'm guessing that's around $850 or $900 on average per company for qualified marketing lead. How can you afford not to spend five minutes debriefing <laughs> the call you had that cost $900? Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's my take. <laughs> seems like a waste waste of money if you're not if you're not uh properly uh evaluating if you got some extra money i'll take it i'm more than happy i can light it on fire if you want to it's your choice uh, light it on fire no way i'll take it to, i'll take it to the bank <laughs> there you go there you go but that's but this is but this is this, this the thing is like i talk to so many of these early stage companies and they start to get infatuated with like a dialer or they get infatuated with like uh you know uh you know having people make make calls real fast and all that kind of stuff all that stuff is good more is good if you have optimized otherwise all you're going to do is in the immortal words of my friend chris beal at connect and sell who's one of those amplification tools connect and sell all you're going to do is amplify suck (laughs) if you're salespeople, it takes them a hundred cold calls to book one meeting that sucks i mean those numbers are pathetic at exec vision we're booking one meeting for every three unscheduled, unexpected calls. We're fairly optimized. Could we get it down to you know two and a half to get one meeting? Probably. Maybe even two to get one meeting. Maybe. But we're already pretty optimized. Versus if you're booking two or three in a hundred, three percent, you know, get yourself up to something like booking one out of five before you start pouring gas on the fire. The yeah. fire is not going well enough yet. Hey, you're burning leads. Forget the money that you're burning. You're also burning the leads and then the, it closes the door on that prospect. Bingo. Yeah. All right. So let's take it at a different um, kind of veer off course here. And I want to talk about your, uh, your go-to-market strategy. And when you first started, maybe is this business, you've got three different businesses that you founded. Where did you start with your GTM? Ah, uh, <laughs> that's interesting you bring that up. Um, necessity is the mother of invention. Uh, I'm not a planner. I'm a doer. Um, it's a little bit of my fault. It's my, probably my best and my worst trait at the same time. <laughs> so there, if, if I told you there was some sort of go-to-market strategy, I'd be lying. Um, instead, the go-to-market strategy emerged for each of the three businesses over time independently on their own. And let me give you a little bit of what I'm talking about here. So 
for example, um, and I'll kind of contrast two businesses. One is the Voresight outsourced appointment setting business. The great irony of that is that it's a very established demand. It's very commoditized, like you need appointments. You either hire your own SDRs and get them yourself or you outsource. Those are your choices. Most people have some sort of an established budget. Um, so at that point, it just becomes a question of like, where are they going to use it to get the biggest ROI or the biggest bang for the buck? Ironically, and this is the fascinating irony, there's such a small percentage of the market that's in an active buying cycle for outsourced appointment setting at any given time. It's like 3%. So because of that, going outbound to try to get appointments for our appointment setting business is not a very productive use of time. We did it before. We ended up getting some clients, but because we had to kind of talk them into why they should outsource, they never ended up being as good as a relationships as they could have been. Yeah. The great irony of that is it's like so ironic. It's crazy. It's almost all the business comes by way of referrals and by way of the salespeople where we book appointments for salespeople at company X. At some point they leave company X, they go to company Y. People are changing jobs like crazy these days. Like, uh, like, <laughs> up. I mean, like, it doesn't change jobs. We're working at the same place my whole life. So, so they, they moved to the next place. And then they bring you in to go there. So the strategy, the go-to-market strategy for that one is basically like, like cultivate your network and your referrals along the way. That's the key to the whole thing. And I, ironically, it's all inbound. So Voresight, almost all the business comes as a result of inbound, but you don't just let inbound happen serendipitously. You can cultivate and maintain those relationships over time, maintain your database, all that just. Now, Control. You go ahead. You had a good question. I, I wanted, yeah, before you jump onto the next go to market, I, I want to expand on that because you you make it sound like uh, just, hey, referrals, uh, you know, the clients love us and, and that's terrific, but I'm sure you're doing something else there. Uh, you know, cultivating that, uh, that network is a lot more difficult and a lot more time consuming than just, yeah, referrals. Can you, what are you doing to cultivate that network? Yeah. And these are three things you should do really, no matter what your go to market is, but especially if you have a very established man type, we're going outbound is a bad idea. So, so one is you've got to maintain an accurate database of all these people and have some sort of content marketing program. And then when they're, when you send them an email and when that email bounces, use a tool like lead gnome. So shout out to my friend, Matt Bonatti for introducing me to this concept. It's genius. Basically what they're doing is mining out all of your, all the bounces of your emails and figuring out uh, information on where these people go and then notify you. So lead gnome, check it out. It's awesome. So basically what you're doing is automating the process of, we refer to it as old client, new company or old customer, new company, OCNC. It's got a little ring to it, OCNC. And we follow people from one company to the next because their email addresses bounce. It becomes that simple. So that's the first thing. Second thing is ask for the referrals. Like who else do you know? It seems so simple. But that behavior, if there's ever a behavior that could dramatically change your business, if you guys got consistent to like 100%, it's that behavior. And I guarantee you, any of you sitting out there, any of you founders or sales leaders sitting out there and listening to this, I guarantee you, if I sat next to your sales team with a freaking clipboard, and if I could do this and be omniscient and be everywhere, I bet they're asking for referrals less than 5% of the time. I bet it's less than 2% of the time. And you want to talk about the easiest lever on the planet to pull. Hey, if any of you know anybody else, you all went, you all worked at at other organizations before this. If any of you know anyone who could use this, please let me know. And then afterwards they they tell you it's remarkable how it works. But if you don't ask, they don't say. 
I think it's important. Uh, before you ask, though, make sure you deliver the value. Well, well, hold on, Adam. I'm going to challenge you on that a little bit just because I can. I've got the data. I've got the research to challenge you. Believe it or not, the research shows, and this was research done by my alma mater, Georgetown. Finally, I get to show up some Georgetown. <laughs> um, the, the research that they did in their, in their marketing, they called it marketing, not sales, but in marketing, in the marketing department, um, they found that the best time to ask for a referral where you have the highest probability of getting it is actually not after you deliver value. That's the second highest. The number one is right after they sign or right before they sign. So immediately before or immediately after someone signs is the highest probability you're going to get a referral. And they believe it's because people are trying to come up with sort of social proof to justify their purchase so that they're like, you know, it, and still risk is still kind of high. This might not work. But if I go and get a whole bunch of other people to do this too, then that will justify it why I made a good decision. Well, it's interesting. Uh... I, I would think that if it's a good time, it's also because like they're excited. Like if I'm, I'm excited to use your tool. Uh, so I just signed up for it. So I haven't really experienced it yet, but I, I think on a subconscious level, that's a really a, a good way to look at it, that they need to social proof themselves that they are getting something good of value. Yeah, It's, pr- it's probably the excitement too. Like the, you know, the most excited you are, the, you know, when you get a car is like the, the, you know, when you fall in love with it during the test drive and then when you first drive it off the lot. Those are the two happiest times you are with a car in your life, with any car. So, yeah. and in, in fact, this research was studying cars. So anyway, it's, it's pretty cool if, if, you, you know, if you start to understand what this actually looks like and then operationalize it in your business. And here we go again, get consistent. Okay. All right. You said there was three things. I can't remember the third. Two is good enough. <laughs> uh, uh, um, content marketing, you know, but there's nothing really to be said there other than con- consistently. I guess the third one I'd, I'd put out there would be uh, social selling. Social selling, I don't like because it's got so many different connotations. Um, be connected with all of your prospects on LinkedIn. Um, there is, this is a zero excuses, Unlo- not prospects, excuse me, all of your customers, all of your customers. Um, the only excuse to not do this is if your customers aren't on LinkedIn. You know, there are a lot of people in like perhaps different blue collar type industries that just, they don't use LinkedIn. Cool. That's fine. If, if they don't use LinkedIn, try to connect with them on some other social network. Cause the other value of that is, um, when they change jobs, you'll frequently get that notification alert or when there's a change in their life, they frequently say, Hey, I just got a new job on Facebook or whatever. Like that started my first day or you t- take a picture on their first day. So you can keep up with them that way. And um, uh, other things too, actually here, here's the, here's the third one, the key to the third one, get their cell phone number when they're a customer, we have 100% cell phone numbers in our salesforce.com instance for every one of our customers, 100% across wow. the board, because why, when people go from one job to the next, what do they do? They, yeah, they, they keep their cell phone, <laughs> they keep their cell phone. And also get their personal email address, which is very easy to do. On LinkedIn, half the people will use personal, half will use business. When you're connected on LinkedIn, most people have their personal email address right there. So you just copy and paste it into your CRM. Boom, you're good to go. Uh, it's, uh, it's good to get their personal phone numbers. I, I found that people start to like it a lot, like your clients, because also on the onboarding process or if they have questions during the during a POC or whatever it may be, they could reach out to you right away. They could send me a WhatsApp. They could call me. Uh, and people like more and more that instant gratification and the instant access. 
almost all of our customers text. I'd say 90% at this point text and prefer it. Yeah. So do I. And so do I. So, you know, shame on you if you're listening to this. I'm going to give you more cortisol. If, you don't, <laughs> if you're not connected with your customers on LinkedIn, if you don't have their cell phone numbers, it's the easiest thing to do. Oh, hey, Mary, how you doing? Good. Hey, you know what? Just so, so I can always be of best service to you. Can I grab your cell phone number? Of course, I want to abuse it, but I can just drop you a text from time to time. Is that okay? Everyone's yeah. going to say yes. Or here's another easy way to do it. Send an email and just say, what's your cell number question mark? And then say, mine is, and then put yours. My mine yeah. is 2302-3193. And I put mine. So it's a give to get. It's a lesson from the book Influenced by Robert Cialadini. Another one that you have to read. Um, credit my friend John Barrows for turning me on to that in the first place. So Influence, Robert Cialadini. If you just Google book Influence, you'll find it. And that's all about... Um, if you give a little present, the Hare Christians used to do this in the airport, give a little, little poppy, a little fake flower. And then after that, ask for a donation. Same thing you're doing here. Give your cell phone number, expect to get it back in return. It works with business cards too. Give your business card first and they give it back. Yeah. I, they do that with uh, waiters and waitresses as well. Is, you know, they bring the little candy. So that way they found that it increases the tip uh, by a good amount. Law of reciprocity. But I would say in the email, don't ask for the number and then give yours. I would say give your number and then ask the, for their email. Because I, I find that if you end the question with the, with the email with a question, you're more likely to get answered. I love it. Actually, while we're, on this, while we're in this vein, let's, I'll throw one more at you. Um, every email, you should end it. Thank you in advance. Um, the research from the data from... I can't remember who the provider was at this point. It was either like a sales opt outreach cow, somebody like, I can't remember who it was, but it, it indicated that maybe yes, where, um, thank you in advance is the number one way to get a reply. Interesting. Cause I hate those kind of, uh, with regards, pl- best wishes. I hate those kind of things and I'm really against that. So maybe I'll start to d- AB test it with thank you in advance. Yeah. I guarantee you, if you test it out, Adam, it'll work. Um, uh, I saw the research. It was pretty compelling. Interesting. Good. Uh, probably for people that you don't have an established relationship with it yet. I, I couldn't tell you that. I, they, were, they were doing it just across all types of emails, across you know thousands of instances of their technology, whatever it was, anonymous yeah. data. So, yeah. Interesting. But I'm not going to fight it. I'm going with it every single time. <laughs> yeah. If it, were, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Bingo. Uh, good. Um, one more question, and I, I think we're getting low on time here. So if you were to start over again, uh, any and all of your companies, what would you do differently in terms of sales? That is a really good question. I would do a better job of the iterative product market fit process and i would have a sales engineer glued to my hip that's what i would do differently interesting Um, because um you can optimize sales easier than you can optimize product market fit Uh, a really understanding the buyer and optimizing product market fit involves a much more um uh how do I say this? A much more dramatic iterative process in, in conjunction hand in hand with the people who are running the, the, the engineering, the technology organization that's building the product. 
Mm-hmm. So it becomes so, so important for them to have a better sense for the, the buyer and, and the voice of the customer and what they, what they care about. And in many cases, the customers don't even know what they care about. So you've got to be able to introduce new things to them and see how they're, how they're involved and reacting to it. And at the same time, sales has to have a better understanding of what's involved in, in doing all the stuff that engineers do to make the product work in the first place. So if I was going to start like from scratch, I would have a technologist that basically acted like a sales engineer that we would just be glued at the hip. Great. So Steve, how can uh, people reach out to you if they, uh, if they have any questions or want to talk about your companies? Uh, cell phone. You can always text me 202-302-3193. I run this webinar series for, called Call Camp for Exec Vision that you should check out too. Um, every month we have uh, really cool guest coaches on that we break down real calls for what works and what doesn't in, in, in sales. It's, it's just like Gruden quarterback camp. Um, there was an old show on ESPN where they would break down quarterback game tape, same concept. We break down sales calls, different sales call types. So if you Google call camp, uh, or hashtag call camp, you should find it call camp and it's exec vision, E X E C vision. Check it out. It's totally free, free sales training for any startup sales leader. It's a perfect fit. Um, in many cases, we don't even have anything to sell you, so we're not even going to call you. Client <laughs> profile, which is fine. I mean, ideally, this is this is also my way, Adam, of giving back to the community. Sure, we generate leads, but I've uh, gotten a lot from uh, sales in my career, and and I'd like to be able to give back through this the form of effectively free sales training. Wow, terrific, great, uh, Steve. Thanks for so much for uh, being with us today. Thanks a lot, Adam. Thanks for listening to Startup Sales with Adam Springer. Subscribe to the podcast so you never miss an episode. Contact Adam about speaking engagements or consulting services at adam at startupsales.io. All right, Steve, let's finish things off with the final five. Hit me. <laughs> You're ready. What is your favorite sales or leadership book? Uh, the Challenger Customer by Brent Adamson and Matt Dixon. Okay. Not Challenger Sale, Challenger Customer. It's 10 times better. Interesting. Okay. Do you have somebody that you follow or uh, read for sales and leadership ideas? I uh, love Jill Conrath. Love Tom Snyder. Good. Are you available 24 7 or do you have strict time boundaries? Very strict time boundaries. I got four kids, ages three, five, seven, nine. Uh, five thirty to eight thirty is dad time, but you can text me whenever you want. I just won't have my cell phone on me. <laughs> the, the beauty of technology, you could ignore. <laughs> oh yeah, I'm very good at that now. Good. What is your favorite tool used for sales? Uh, you, <laughs> you'll be surprised at my answer for this. There's a really cool website called TruePeopleSearch.com where you can get people's cell phone numbers, and it's totally free, and they don't even allow, they don't even require you to register. Shocking. I don't know how, but TruePeopleSearch.com. Check it out. You'll be your mind will be blown. Wow. Uh, it's a, everybody's asking, always asking, how can I get cell phone numbers? That's a good one. TruePeopleSearch.com. Bingo. All right. What one piece of advice do you have for all the founders and uh, sales leaders out there? Uh, do what I did in my first job. I was failing. And then I realized that what I was doing wasn't working. So go try things that are out of your comfort zone. Uh, study what the best people do differently and approach sales more like science. Get the science part down first before you worry about the art. Amazing. 
Great. Steve, thank you very much for joining us.